Chapter Number Five of The Home and the World by Rabindranath Tagore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Harsh Surana. Nikhil's Story, Part Fourth. Everything is rippling and waving with the flood of August. The young shoots of rice have the sheen of an infant's limbs. The water has invaded the garden next to our house. The morning light, like the love of the blue sky, is lavished upon the earth. Why cannot I sing? The water of the distant river is shimmering with light. The leaves are glistening. The rice fields, with their fitless shivers, break into gleams of golds. And in this symphony of autumn, only I remain voiceless. The sunshine of the world strikes my heart, but is not reflected back. When I realize the lack of expressiveness in myself, I know why I am deprived. Who could bear my company day and night, without a break? Bimla is full of energy of life, and so she has never become stale to me for a moment. In all these nine years of our wedded life, my life has only its dumb depths, but no murmuring rush. I can only receive, not impart movement, and therefore my company is like fasting. I recognize clearly today that Bimla has been languishing because of a famine of companionship. Then whom shall I blame? Like Vidyapati, I can only lament. It is August. The sky breaks into a passionate rain. Alas, empty is my house. My house, I now see, was built to remain empty because its doors cannot open. But I never knew till now that its divinity had been sitting outside. I had fondly believed that she had accepted my sacrifice and granted in return her boon. But alas, my house has all along been empty. Every year about this time, it was our practice to go in a houseboat over the broads of Samlada. I used to tell Bimla that a song must come back to its refrain over and over again. The original refrain of every song is in nature, where the rain-laden wind passes over the rippling stream, where the green earth, drawing its shadows, wheel over its face. Keep its ear close to the speaking water. There, at the beginning of time, a man and woman first met, not within walls, and therefore we too must come back to nature at least once a year to tune our love anew to the first pure note of the meeting of our hearts. The first two anniversaries of our married life I spent in Calcutta, where I went through my examinations. But from the next day onwards, for seven years without a break, we have celebrated our union among the blossoming water lilies. Now begins the next octave of my life. It was difficult for me to ignore the fact that the same month of August had come round again this year. Does Bimla remember it? I wonder. She has given me no reminder. Everything is mute about me. It is August. The sky breaks into a passionate rain. Alas, empty is my house. The house which becomes empty. Through the parting of lovers, still has music left in the heart of its emptiness. But the house that is empty because hearts are asunder is awful in its silence. Even the cry of pain is out of place there. This cry of pain must be silenced in me. So long as I continue to suffer, Bimla will never have true freedom. I must free her completely. Otherwise, I shall never gain my freedom from untruth. I think I have come to the verge of understanding one thing. Man has so fanned the flame of the loves of men and women as to make its overpass its rightful domain, and now, even in the name of the humanity itself, he cannot bring it back under control. Man's worship has idealized his passion, but there must be no more human sacrifices at at its shrine. 
I went into my bedroom this morning to fetch a book. It is long since I have been there in the daytime. A pang passed through me as I look round it today, in the morning light. On the clothes rack was hanging a sari of Vimla's crinkle ready for wear. On the dressing table were her perfumes, her comb, her hairpins and with them still her vermilion box. Underneath were her tiny gold embroidered slippers. Once, in the old days when Bimla had not yet overcome her objections to shoes, I had got these out from Lucknow to tempt her. The first time she was ready to drop, for very shame, to go in them ever from the room to the veranda. Since then, she has worn out many shoes, but has treasured up despair. When first showing her the slippers, I chaffed her over a curious practice of hers. I have caught you taking the dust off my feet, thinking me asleep. These are the offerings of my worship to ward the dust off the feet of my wakeful divinity. You must not say such things, she protested, or I will never wear your shoes. This bedroom of mine, it has subtle atmosphere which goes straight to my heart. I was never aware, as I am today, how my thirsting heart has been sending on its roots to cling around each and every familiar object. The severing of the main road I see is not enough to set life free. Even those little sippers serve to hold one back. My wandering eyes falls on the niche. My portrait there is looking the same as ever, in spite of the flowers scattered around it having been withered black. Of all the things in the room, their greeting strikes me as sincere. They are still here simply because it was not felt worthwhile even to remove them. Never mind, let me welcome truth, albeit in such sere and sorry garb, and look forward to the time when I shall be able to do so unmoved, as does my photograph. As I stood there, Bimal came in from behind. I hastily turned to my eyes from the niche to the shelves as I muttered, I came to get Emile's journal. What need had I to volunteer an explanation? I felt like wrongdoer, a trespasser, prying into a secret not meant for me. I could not look Bimal in the face, but hurried away. Fifth. I had just made the discovery that it was useless to keep up pretense of reading in my room and also that it was equally beyond me to busy myself attending to anything at all, so that all the days of my future bid fair to congeal into one solid mass and settle heavily on my breast for good. When Panchu, the tenant of the neighbouring Zamindar, came to me with a basket full of cocoa nuts and greeted me with profound obscience. Well, Panchu, said I, what is all this for? I had got to know Panchu through my master. He was extremely poor, nor was I in a position to do anything for him. So I suppose this present was intended to procure a tip to help the poor fellow to make both ends meet. I took some money from my purse and held it out towards him, but with folded hand he protested. I cannot take that, sir. Why? What is the matter? Let me make a clean breast of it, sir. Once, when I was hard pressed, I stole some coconuts from the garden here. I am getting gold and may die any day. So I have come to pay them back. Amil's journal could not have done any good that day. But these words of Panchu lightened my heart. There are more things in life than union or separation of man and woman. The great world stretches far beyond and one can truly measure one's joy and sorrows when standing in its midst. Panchu was devoted to my master. I know well enough how he manages to ache out a live food. He is up before dawn every day and with a basket of pan leaves, twists of tobacco, coloured cotton yarn, little combs, looking glasses and other trinkets beloved of the village woman, he wades through the knee-deep water of the marsh and goes over to the Namasudra quarters. 
There he berates his goods for the rice, which faces him a little more than the price of the money. If he can get back soon enough, he goes out again after a hurried meal to the sweetmeat cellars where he assists in beating sugar for wafers. As soon as he comes home, he sits at his shell bangle making, plodding on often till midnight. All this cruel toil does not earn for my himself and his family a bare two meal a day during much more than half the year. His method of eating is to begin with a good feeling draught of water, and his staple food is the cheapest kind of seedy banana. And yet the family has to go with only one meal a day for the rest of the year. At one time, I had an idea of making him a charity allowance, but said my master. Your gift may destroy the man; it cannot destroy the hardship of his lot. Mother Bengal has not only this one punchu. If the milk in her breast has run dry, that cannot be supplied from outside. These are thoughts which gave one pause, and I decided to devote myself to working it out. That very day, I said to Bimla, "Let us dedicate our lives to removing the root of the sorrow in our country." You are my prince, Siddharth. I see," she replied with a smile. But do not let the torrent of your feelings end by sweeping me away. Also, Siddharth took his woe alone. I want yours to be a joint arrangement. The idea passed away in talk. The fact is, Bimla is at heart what is called a lady. Though her own people are not well off, she was born a rani. She had no doubts in her mind that there is a lower unit of measure for the trials and troubles of the lower classes. Want is, of course, a permanent feature of their lives, but does not necessarily mean want to them. Their very smallness protects them, as the banks protect the pool by whittling bounds. Only the slime is exposed. The real fact is that Pimla has only come into my home, not into my life. I had magnified her, so leaving her such a large place that when I lost her, my whole way of life became narrow and confined. I had thrust aside all the objects into a corner to make a room for Pimla. Taken up as I was with decorating her, and dressing her, and educating her, and moving around her. day and night forgetting how great is humanity and how noble precious is man's life when the actualities of everyday things get the better of the man then is truth lost sight of and freedom missed so painfully important did bimla make the mere actualities that the truth remained concealed from me that is why i find no gap in my misery and spread this minute point of my emptiness all over the world and so for hours on this autumn morning the refrain has been humming in my ears Bimla story part 11 The change which had in a moment come over the myths of Bengal was tremendous it was as if the ganges had touched the ashes of the 60000 sons of sagar which no fire could enkindle no other water need into a living clay the ashes of lifeless bengal suddenly woke up here i am i have read somewhere that in ancient greece a sculptor had the good fortune to impart life to the image made by his own hand even in that miracle however there was the process of form preceding life but where was the unity in the heap of barren ashes had they been hard like stone we might have the hopes of some form emerging even as ahalya though turned to stone at last won back her humanity but these scattered ashes must have dropped to the dust through gaps in the creator's finger as to blow hither and thither by the wind they had become heaped up but were never before united yet in this day when had come to bengal even this collection of looseness had taken shape and proclaimed in a thundering voice at our very own door here i am how could we help thinking that it was all supernatural 
This moment of our history seemed to have dropped into our hand like a jewel from the crown of some drunken god. It had no res resemblance to our past, and so were laid to hope that all our wants and miseries would disappear by the spell of some magic charm. That for us was no longer a boundary line between the possible and the impossible. Everything seemed to be saying to us, it is coming to us, it has come. Thus we came to cherish the belief that our history needed no steed, but that like heaven's chariot it would move into its own inherent power. At least no wages would have to be paid to the charioteer. Only his wine cap would have to be filled again and again. And then in some impossible paradise the goal of our hopes would be reached. My husband was not altogether unmoved. But through all our excitement, it was the strain of sadness in which deepened and deepened. He seemed to have a vision of something beyond the surging present. I remember one day, in the course of the argument he continually had with Sandeep, he said, Good fortune comes to our gate and announces itself, only to prove that we have not the power to receive it, that we have not kept things ready to be able to invite into it into our homes. No, was Sandeep's answer, you talk like an atheist because you do not believe in our gods. To us, it has been made quite visible that the goddesses has come with a boom, yet you distrust the obvious signs of a presence? It is because I strongly believe in God, said my husband, that I feel so certain that our preparations for this worship are lacking. God has power to give the boon, but we must have the power to accept it. This kind of talk from my husband would only annoy me. I could not keep from joining in. You think this excitement is only a fire of drunkenness, but not drunkenness up to a point gives strength? Yes, my husband replied. It may give strength, but not weapons. But strength is a gift of the god. I went on. Weapons can be supplied by mere mechanics. My husband smiled. The mechanics will claim their wages before they deliver their supplies, he said. Sandeep swelled with chest as he retorted. Don't you trouble about that. Their wages shall be paid. I shall bespeak the festive music when the payment has been made, not before, my husband answered. You need not imagine that we are depending on your bounty for the music, said Sandeep scornfully. Our festival is above all money payments. And in this thick voice he began to sing. My lover of the unpriced love, spurning payments, plays upon the simple pipe, bought for nothing, drawing my heart away. Then he smiled with, he turned to me and said, if I sing Queen Bee, it is only to prove that when music comes into one's life, the lack of good voice is no matter. When we sing merely on the full strength of our tunefulness, the sound is belittled. Now that a full flood of music has swept over the country, let Nithil practice his scales, while we arouse our land with our cracked voice. My house cries to me, Why go out to lose your all? My life says, All that you have fling to the winds. If we must all lose our all, let us lose it. What is it worth after all? If I must court ruin, let me do it smilingly, for my quest is the dead trot of immortality. The truth is, Nikhil, that we all have lost our hearts. None can hold us longer within the bounds of the easy possible, in a forward rush to hopelessly impossible. Those who would draw us back, they know not the fearful joy of recklessness. They know not that we have had our own call. From the end of the crooked path, all that is good and straight and trim. Let it topple over in the dust. I thought that my husband was going to continue the discussion, but he rose silently from his seat and left us. The thing that was agitating me within was merely a variation of the stormy passion outside, which swept the country from one end to the other. The car of the wielder of my destiny was fast approaching, and the sound of its wheel reverberated in my being. 
I had a constant feeling that something extraordinary might happen any moment, for which, however, the responsibility would not be mine. Was I not removed from the pain in which the right and the wrong and the feelings of others have to be considered? Had I ever wanted this? Had I ever been waiting or hoping that any, for any such thing? Look at my whole life and tell me then if I was in any way accountable. Through all my past, I had been consistent in my devotion, but when at length it came to receiving the boon, a different God appeared, and just as the awakened country with its Bande Matram thrills in salutation to the unrealized future before it, so do all my veins and nerves send forth shocks to welcome of the unthought of, of the unknown, the importunate stranger. One night I left my bed and slipped out of my room on the open terrace, beyond our garden wall and fields of ripening rice. Through the gaps in the village groves to the north, glimpses of the river are seen. The whole scene slept in the darkness like the vague embryo of some future creation. In that future, I saw my country, a woman like myself, standing expectant. She has been drawn forth from a home corner by the sudden call of some unknown. She has no time to pursue or ponder or to light herself a torch as she rushes forward into the darkness ahead. I know well how her very soul responds to its distant flute strains which call her, how her breast rises and falls, how she feels she nears it. Nay, it is already hers, so that it matters not even if she is blindfolded. She is no mother, there is no call to her of children in their hunger. No home to be lighted of an evening, no household work to be done, so she hees to her tryst. For this is the land of Vaishnava poets. She has left home, forgotten domestic duties. She has nothing but an unfathomable yearning which hurries her on by what road, to what goal she recks not. I also am possessed of just such a yearning. I likewise have lost my home and lost my way. Both the end and the means have become equally shadowy to me. There remains only the yearning and the hurrying on. Ah, wretched wanderer through the night. When the dawn raddens you will see no trace of a way to return. But why return? Death will serve as well. If the darkness which sounded the flute should lead to destruction, why trouble about the hereafter? When I am merged in its blackness, neither I, nor good and bad, nor laughter, nor tears shall be any more. Part 12 In Bengal, the machinery of time being thus suddenly run at full pressure, Things which were different became easy, one falling soon after the other. Nothing could be held back any more, even in one corner of the country. In the beginning, our district was backward, for my husband was unwilling to put any compulsion on the villagers. Those who make sacrifices for their country's sake are indeed her servants, he would say. But those who compel others to make them in their name and her enemies, they would cut freedom at the root to gain it at the top. But when Sandeep came and settled here and his followers began to move about the country, speaking in towns and market places, waves of excitement came rolling up to us as well. A band of young fellows of the locality attached themselves to him. Some even had been known as a disgrace to the village. But the glow on their genius enthusiasm lighted them up, within as well as without. It became quite clear that when the pure breezes of great joy and hope sweets sweep through the land. All dirt and decay are cleansed away. It is hard indeed for men to be frank and straight and healthy when their country is in the throes of dejection. Then were all eyes turned on my husband, from whose estates alone sugar, uh, foreign sugar and salt and clothes had not been banished. Even the estate officers began to feel awkward and ashamed over it. 
And yet some time ago, when my husband began to import country-made articles into our village, he had been secretly and openly tweeted for his follow by old and young alike. When Sodeshi had not yet become a boast, we had de despised it with all our hearts. My husband still sharpens his Indian-made pencils with his Indian-made knives, does his writing with reed pens, drinks his water out of a bell-metal vessel, and works at night in the light of an old-fashioned castor oil lamp. But this dull milk and water Swadeshi offers never appealed to us. Rather, we had always felt ashamed of the inelegant, unfashionable furniture of his reception rooms, especially when he had magistrate or any other European as his guest. My husband used to make light of my protests. Why allow such trifles to upset you? He would say with a smile. Then will think us barbarians or at all events wanting in refinement. If they do, I will pay them back by thinking what their refinement does not go deeper than their white skins. My husband had an ordinary brass pot on his writing table which he used as a flower vase. It has often happened that when I had put news of some European guest, I would steal into his room and put in its place a crystal vase of European make. Look here, Bimla, he objected at length, that brass pot is an unconscious of itself as those blossoms are. But this thing protests its purpose so loudly. It is only fit for artificial flowers. The Bararani alone pondered to my husband's whims. Once she came panting to say, Oh brother, have you heard? Such lovely Indian soaps have come out. My day of luxury are gone by. Still, if they contain no animal fat, I shall like to try some. This sort of things makes my husband beam all over and the house is deluged with Indian scents and soaps. Soaps in indeed, they are more like lump of caustic soda. And do I not know that what my sister-in-law uses on herself are European soaps of old while these are made over to the maids for washing clothes? Another time it is, oh brother dear, do get some for me of these new Indian penholders. Her brothers bubbles up as usual and the Bararani's room becomes littered with all kinds of awful sticks that go by the name of Swadeshi penholders. Not that it makes any difference to her, for reading and writing are out of her line. Still, in her writing case lies the self-sane ivory penholder, the only one ever handled. The fact is, all this was intended as a hit at me, because I, was, I would not keep my husband company in his vagaries. It was no good trying to show up my sister-in-law's insincerity. My husband's face would set so hard if I barely touched on it. One only gets into trouble trying to save such people from being imposed upon. The Bararani loves suing. One day I could not help blurting out. What a humbug you are, sister. When your brother is present, your mouth waters at the very mention of Swadeshi scissors. But it is an English-made article every time when you work. What harm, she replied. Do you not see what pleasure it gives me? We have grown up together in this house. Since he was a boy, I simply cannot bear, as you can, the sight of the smile leaving his face. Poor dear, he has no amusement except this plying at the shopkeeping. You are his only dissipation, and you will be his ruin. Whatever you may say, it is not right to be double-faced, I retorted. My sister-in-law laughed out in my face. Oh, you artless little Chota Rani, straight as a schoolmaster's rod, eh? But a woman is not built that way. She's soft and supple, 
so that she may bend without being crooked i could not forget those words you are his dissipation and will be his ruin today i feel if a man needs must have some intoxicant let it not be a woman part 13 suksar within our estates is one of the biggest trade centers in the district on one side of a stretch of water there is held a daily bazaar on the other a weekly market during the rains when this piece of water gets connected with the river and the boats can come through great quantities of cotton yarns and woolen stuffs for the coming winter are bought and for sale at the height of our enthusiasm sandeep laid it down that all foreign articles together with demon of foreign influence must be driven out of the territory of course said i girding myself up for a fight i have had words with nikhil about it said sandeep he tells me he does not mind specifying but he will not have cursion i will see to that i said with a proud sense of power i knew how deep was my husband's love for me had i been in my senses i should have allowed myself to be torn to pieces rather than assert my claim to that at such a truth and a time but sandeep had to be impressed with the full strength of my shakti sandeep had brought home to me in his irresistible way how the cosmic energy was revealed for each individual in the shape of some special affinity vaishnava philosophy he said speaks of the shakti of delight that swells in the heart of creation ever attracting the heart of her eternal lover men have a perpetual longing to bring out this shakti from the hidden depths of their own nature and those of us who succeed in doing so at once clearly understand the meaning of the music coming to us from the dark he broke out singing my flute that was busy with its song is silent now when we stand face to face my call went seeking you from sky to sky when you lay hidden but now all my cry find, finds a smile in the face of my beloved listening to his allegories i had forgotten that i was plain and simple bimla i was shakti also an embodiment of universal joy nothing could fetter me nothing was impossible for me what i touched would gain new life the world around me was a fresh creation of mine for behold before my heart's response and touched it there had not been this wealth of gold in the autumn sky and this hero this true servant of the country this devotee of mine this flaming intelligence this burning energy this shining genius him also was i creating from the moment to the moment have i not seen how my present pours fresh life into him time after time the other day sandeep begged me to receive a young lad amulya an ardent disciple of his in a moment i could see a new light flash out from my boy's eyes and knew that he too had a vision of shakti manifest that my creative force had begun its work in his blood what sorcery is this of yours exclaimed sandeep next day amulya is a boy no longer the wick of his life is all ablaze who can hide your fire under your home roof every one of them must be touched by it sooner or later and when every lamp is all right when a grand carnival of a diwali we shall have in a country blinded with brilliance of my own glory i had decided to grant my devotee this boon i was overwhelmingly confident that none could balk me of what i really wanted when i returned to the, my room after my talk with sandeep i loosed my hair and tied it up over again miss gilby had taught me a way of brushing it up from neck and piling it to the knot over my head this style was a favorite one with my husband it is a pity he once said that providence should always have chosen poor me instead of poet kalidas for revealing all the wonders of a woman's neck the poet would probably have likened it to a flower stem but i feel it would be a torch holding aloft with black flame of your hair with which he but why oh why do i go back to all that 
I sent for my husband in the good old days. I could contrive a hundred and one excuses, good or bad, to get him to come to me. Now that all this has stopped for days, I had lost the art of contriving. Nikhil's story, part six. Panchu's wife had just died of a lingering consumption. Panchu must undergo a purification ceremony to cleanse himself of sin and to propitiate his community. The community had calculated and informed him that it will cost 123 rupees. How absurd, I cried, highly indigent. Don't submit to this, Panchu. What can they do to you? Raising me to his patient eyes like those of a tired-out beast of burden, he said, There is my eldest girl. Sir, she will have to be married, and my poor wife's last rites have to be put through. Even if their sins were yours, Panchu, I mused aloud, you have surely suffered enough for it already. That is so, sir, he naively assented. I had to sell part of my line and mortgage the rest to meet the doctor's bill. But there is no escape from the offerings I have to make the Brahmins. What was the use of arguing when will come the time, I wondered, for the purification of the Brahmins themselves who can accept such offerings. After his wife's illness and funeral, Panchu, who had been tottering on the brink of starvation, went altogether beyond his death. In a desperate attempt to gain consolation of some sort, he took to sitting at the feet of a wandering ascetic and succeeded in acquiring philosophy enough to forget that his children went hungry. He kept himself steeped for a time in the idea that the world is vanity and if of pleasure it has none pain also in delusion. Then at least one night he left his little ones in their tumble-down novel and starved off wandering on his own account. I knew nothing of this at the time for just then a veritable ocean churning by gods and demons was going on in my head. Nor did my master tell me that he had taken Panchu's deserted children under his roof and was caring for them through all alone in the house, with the school to attend to the whole day. After a month, Panchu came back, his ascetic fervour considerably worn off, his, his eldest boy and girl nestled up to him, crying, Where have you been all this time, father? His youngest boy filled his lap, his second girl leaned over his back with her arms around his neck. And they all wept together. Oh, sir, sobbed Panchu, at lengthy to my master. I have not the power to give these little ones enough to eat. I am free, I am not free to run away from them. What has been my sin that I should be scorched, so bound hand and foot? In the meantime, the thread of Panchu's little trade connections had snapped up and he found he could not resume them. He clung to his shelter, to my master's roof, which had first received him on his return and said not a word of going back home. Look here, Panchu, my master was at last, at last driven to say, if you don't take care of your cottage, it will tumble down altogether. I will lend you some money with which you can do a bit of peddling and return it military little by little. Panchu was not excessively pleased. Was there no such thing as charity on earth? And when my master asked him to write out a receipt for the money, he felt that this favour, demanding a return, was hardly worth having. My master, however, did not care to make an outward gift which would leave an inward obligation. To destroy self-respect is to destroy caste, was his idea. After signing the note, Panchu's obeisance to my master fell off considerably in its reverence. The dust-taking was left out. It made my master smile. He asked nothing better than courtesy should stoop less low. Respect given and taken truly balances the account between man and man, was the way he put it, but veneration is overpayment. Panchu began to buy cloth at the market and peddle it about the village. He did not get much of cash payment, it is true, but what he could realise in kind in the way of rice, jute and other field produce 
went towards settlement of his account. In two months' time he was able to pay back an instalment of my master's debt, and with it there was a corresponding reduction in the depth of his bow. He must have begun to feel that he had been revering as a saint, a mere man, who had not even risen superior to the lure of Luca. While Panchu was thus engaged, the full shock of the Swadeshi flood fell on him. 7. It was vacation time, and many youths of our village and its neighbourhood had come home from their schools and colleges. They attached themselves to Sandeep's leadership with enthusiasm, and some, in their excess of zeal, gave up their studies altogether. Many of the boys had been free pupils of my school here, and some held college scholarships from me in Calcutta. They came up in a body, and demanded that I should banish foreign goods from my Suksar market. I told them I could not do it. They were sarcastic. Why, Maharaja, will the loss be too much for you? I took no notice of the insult in their tone, and was about to reply that the loss would fall on the poor traders and their customers, not on me, when my master, who was present, interposed. Yes, the loss will be his, not yours. That is clear enough, he said. But for one's country, the country does not mean the soil, but the men on it, interrupted my master again. Have you yet wasted so much as a glance on what was happening to them? But now you would dictate what salt they shall eat, what clothes they shall wear. Why should they put up with such tyranny, and why should we let them? But we have taken to Indian salt and sugar and cloth ourselves. You may do as you please to work off your irritation, to keep up your fanaticism. You are well off. You need not mind the cost. The poor do not want to stand in your way, but you insist on their submitting to your compulsion. As it is, every moment of theirs is a life-and-death struggle for a bare living. You cannot even imagine the difference a few pence means to them. So little have you in common. You have spent your whole past in a superior compartment, and now you come down to use them as tools for the reeking of your wrath. I call it cowardly. They were all old pupils of my master, so they did not venture to be disrespectful, though they were quivering with indignation. They turned to me. Will you then be the only one, Maharaja, to put obstacles in the way of what the country would achieve? Who am I that I should dare to do such a thing? Would I not rather lay down my life to help it? The M.A. student smiled a crooked smile as he asked, May we inquire what you are actually doing to help? I have imported Indian mill-made yarn and kept it for sale in my Suksar market, and also sent bales of it to markets belonging to neighbouring zamindars. But we have been to your market, Maharaja, the same student exclaimed, and found nobody buying this yarn. That is neither my fault nor the fault of my market. It only shows the whole country has not yet taken your vow. That is not all, my master went on. It shows that what you have pledged yourselves to do is only to pester others. You want dealers who have not taken your vow to buy that yarn, weavers who have not taken your vow to make it up. Then their wares eventually to be foisted onto consumers who also have not taken your vow. The method, your clamour, and the zamindar's oppression. The result, all righteousness yours, all privations theirs. And may we venture to ask further, 
what your share of the privation has been? pursued a science student. You want to know, do you? replied my master. It is Nikhil himself who has to buy up that Indian mill yarn. He has to start a weaving school to get it woven, and to judge by his past brilliant business exploits, by the time his cotton fabrics leave their loom, their cost will be that of cloth of gold. So they will only find a use, perhaps, as curtains for his drawing-room, even though their flimsiness may fail to screen him. When you get tired of your vow, you will laugh the loudest at their artistic effect, and if their workmanship is ever truly appreciated at all, it will be by foreigners. I have known my master all my life, but have never seen him so agitated. I could see that the pain had been silently accumulating in his heart for some time, because of his surpassing love for me, and that his habitual self-possession had become secretly undermined to the breaking point. "'You are our elders,' said the medical student. "'It is unseemly that we should bandy words with you, but tell us, pray, finally, are you determined not to oust foreign articles from your market?' "'I will not,' I said, "'because they are not mine.' "'Because that will cause you a loss,' smiled the M.A. student. "'Because he whose is the loss is the best judge,' retorted my master. "'With a shout of bande matarum, they left us.' End of chapter 5